I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. But with this independence comes a lot of work and some insecurity. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so I can continue to do what I do. Please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. Or you can become a supporter of this podcast directly on anchor.fm by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page or on the link included in the show notes. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with journalist and co-host of Blocked and Reported, Katie Herzog. Thank you for joining me today on The Same Drugs, Katie Herzog. I'm really looking forward to talking to you, as always. Good to see you again. How are you? I'm good, you? I'm doing great. I'm really stoked that my Wi-Fi is working well, as I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully Wi-Fi's... I won't crap up. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, you know, the eighth time is the charm for us. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, so I really enjoyed reading the piece that you wrote in Reason, was that last week? Published on the 14th, um, about Florian Jaeger. Am I pronouncing his name right? I think so. Okay. That's how I pronounce it. He's never corrected me, so we'll go with that. <laughs> We'll just assume that we're doing this properly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder, I'm going to ask you to sort of relay what happened. It was a very long piece, but very engaging. So good job. Um, But uh, I first, I'm curious to know when you first came across this story and why you started following it. So an editor brought this to me um, last fall And at first I was really confused by the story because I, the first thing I did was Google Florian. And what I saw were a bunch of really pretty terrible allegations against him. The the most prominent one was from Mother Jones magazine in 2017, the fall of 2017. Um, This uh, came out a month before the Me Too movement started. And this particular piece was called something like, uh, she was a rising star professor, professor. He, no, she was a rising star and then a lecherous professor made her life hell or something like that. And this was the first in a series of many articles that would accuse Florian of an array of really serious sins, sexual harassment, sexual predation, um, sleeping with students. And so at first I thought like, there's like, what's the other story here? But I, I said I would look into it. So I talked to Florian and our first conversation was, was a few hours and he explained his side of the story and it was long and complicated and there were so many characters. And the piece that I wrote, there are too many characters in it already. It makes it a little bit hard to follow. There are more characters that I didn't even include in the piece because there's just, this is a long, complicated story that spanned years. Um, and so the, the TLDR version is that there was a, this is at the University of Rochester in the Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department. And in 2016, there was a uh, a fight over hiring decision. And I, I actually should back up a second and tell you a little bit about Florian himself. So he got to Uni- University of Rochester in 2007. Uh, he was 30, so young. And um, he, when he got there, he 
as one person, one colleague put it, he sort of didn't act his station in life. He, by nature, he's German. By nature, he's much more um, honest. Maybe that's the word. He's much more forthright than uh, than is maybe typical in academia. He gave people very harsh and very honest feedback that wasn't always welcomed. And he was also flirty. He was, he was I, I should have made this more clear in the piece, but he was popular and, and well-liked, charismatic, charming, but he was also flirty. He crossed some boundaries. He made jokes about sex uh, with students and faculty in a way that is just inappropriate, was inappropriate then, is more inappropriate now in 2022. Uh, for one, one, one instance, at a party, he told a professor in front of a group of students that a student found him, her attract, found him attractive. And this was totally mortifying to the students. So stuff like that, inappropriate sort of boundary crossing. And he also did sleep with a couple of students. None of them were his students. Um, there were, he was involved with four students, three graduate students uh, who were either, it's a little complicated, but they basically, the, the short version is that they were not in his lab uh, or in his, that he wasn't teaching them. He slept with one undergraduate. Um, he says that he didn't know that she was a, a student when she approached him. But anyway, they had a fling. So we did have these four relationships that even under university policy, when this all came out, would still be considered kosher. Not a great idea, obviously, but weren't, didn't violate any university policy because the policy was that you couldn't sleep with, with your own students. It wasn't that you couldn't sleep with any students. And um, so Florian did this between 2007 and 2010, ill-advised, but he was... 30, 30 to 33, and uh, new in this town, and he was socializing more with grad students who were closer to his age than his own colleagues. So he, he made a series of mistakes that, for him, just seemed normal, or at least that's how he put it. He didn't realize this. And he did make some people uncomfortable. And part of this was who he is, but part of it was also the rumors that circulated around him. So it's sort of unclear about if people were uncomfortable because of his actual behavior, or if they were uncomfortable because of what people said about his behavior. Mm. And so his uh his behavior there was there was basically there was a, a minor complaint against him filed by a graduate student in 2013 and this wasn't sexual in nature she had two two particular things that she complained about one was that he walked into this shared office that she kept with some other students graduate students took a post-it off of her her colleague's desk and stood behind her writing a note and that made her uncomfortable and then at a party uh, he asked to take a photo of her and she declined and he took one anyway. And uh, so she wrote a note to the then department head about this, complaining about it. And she noted this, this, this wasn't talking about sexual harassment, but the department head went and talked to Florian. And by all accounts, this actually did change Florian's behavior. He became more aware of how he was perceived by others. He was embarrassed and, uh, and he changed. And, uh, and then, so there were no com further complaints against him until 2016. And in 2016, the department was engaged in this heated battle over a hiring decision. And basically a, a really beloved faculty member had died and the department was in the process of replacing him. And there was one candidate who the majority of the department liked because he, this guy who died, his name was David Nill. His focus was on vision and this Italian neuroscientist named Michel Rucci. He also focused on vision. And so they thought he can, you know, come in and, uh, and sort of keep, David Nell's legacy going. But there was some some debate over this and it got really heated at one point. Uh, the main the main sort of voice against Rucci was this woman named Jessica Cantlon, who Florian had previously been friends with, but they'd had something of a falling out, or at least they'd kind of stopped hanging, hanging out together. 
And Cantlon, in one of these meetings, said that they couldn't hire hire Rucci because he was married to his graduate student, and uh, and you know this is unethical. And so this led to this heated debate, partly because you can't talk about relationships or marital status within a hiring decision. This is illegal. And so Florian, along with a number of his colleagues, basically were like, we can't talk about this. This is no one's business. And Florian said that if he, if they kept talking about this, he would leave the meeting and another colleague actually left. So this would begin this Kafka-esque nightmare. Uh, basically, Cantlon continued to campaign against Rushi. She tried to scuttle the negotiations against him in various ways. And after this, this meeting, she went to, to a former department head named Dick Aslan, some of her other colleagues, and said, basically, Florian is a sexual predator. We can't have another sexual predator in the, predator in the department. If Rucci, Rucci's hired, I'm going to leave. And so this began, this is where it all begins. They ended up filing complaints against him. Uh, Kaslan, uh, Cantlon, this this former department head she went to named Richard Aslan, the main student accuser, she wasn't a student anymore, but the main sort of voice victim uh, was a woman named Celeste Kidd, who was by then, she had been a graduate student, but she was hired by the department. And so to make a long story very short, there were four investigations into Florian's behavior. Uh, every one of them found that he had not violated university policy. And in fact, that his accusers had misrepresented the very people they said were victims. So they would say, for instance, like, in one complaint, they said that a student who Florian had had a relationship with was crying in a professor's office. And what, what investigators found when they actually interviewed this woman was that she was crying because her sister had been in a car accident. Uh, other women who said that they had consensual relationships with Florian, uh, they were misrepresented by these complainants, by his accusers, as being as having unconsensual relationships with him and saying that they felt powerless against him. But his actual the women that he actually was involved with didn't say this. So there's a sort of irony where these women are having consensual relationships and these professors are non-consensually calling them victims and doing it in official complaints. So lots of allegations against him. At one point, they claim that at one of his lab retreats, a student overdosed on drugs. Uh, what happened is that his longtime partner, who is a faculty member, ate too much of a pot brownie. <laughs> you know, she did go to the hospital, that's true. She freaked out. But that is just a, a vast overrepresentation or it's a vast misrepresentation of what actually happened. You know, when I hear overdose on drugs, I'm thinking of fentanyl, heroin, cocaine. I'm not thinking of ate too much of a pot brownie. And I'm kind of freaked out. out. Right, right. <laughs> had a bad trip. <laughs> right. And so they also, these investigations also found that his accusers were, they were supposed to, this was all supposed to be confidential. And they were just spreading this all over the place within the department, outside the department. And this had, as you would imagine, very, very serious effects on Florian's career, which had been, he was one of these rising stars in the field and everything came crashing down for him. So four investigations all found the same things. He had acted foolishly. Uh, he, you know, had, had some personality traits that made people uncomfortable. <clears throat> some people really did, both men and women really did avoid him, but they all found that he hadn't violated university policy. And the really crazy thing about this is that afterwards, so this leads to all sorts of things. Eight people end up resigning from the, from the university, including the president of the university himself, who stepped down after this. There are student protests. One student goes on a hunger strike. She'd never met Florian before, but she, she goes on a hunger strike. Just rumors circulating all over the place. You know, it, uh, the, the initial claims were about harassment, and all of a sudden he's a predator and a rapist. Things like that happen, of course, just through this game of telephone. And the really insane thing about this is that even after these four investigations find that Florian hasn't violated university policy, 
His accusers filed a federal lawsuit. And after years of, of, of uh, legal proceedings, the university settled with them for $9.4 million. So Florian's career is destroyed. They got paid. They moved on to other more prestigious jobs. One of, one of them is at uh, UC Berkeley. Another one is at Carnegie Mellon. This guy, Richard Aslan, who he retired in protest, retired th three years early in protest. He won an award for the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, and they, they noted it in a press release that he, he was he stood up for, you know, for females, for females in science. And the thing is, he like none of it was real. You know, I mean, there's some there's small allegations against him. He did make people uncomfortable. That is true. He had some personality conflicts. He made bad decisions, but he was not a predator. And uh, and that is still the reputation that he has today. So this absolutely destroyed his life. And um, these people won. They won. Yeah, and they were, I mean, Jessica Cantlin, Cantlin and, and Celeste Kidd were celebrated in the media. They were oh, celebrated among Time's Person of the Year. Yeah, yeah, they were in Time Magazine. When Time Magazine did that Silence Breakers cover with the, the women of the year, the women of Me Too, they were included in that. They became icons of this movement. They are today, they are still looked at as heroes. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I I want to talk about motivation i mean so it sounds like there were there were seven accusers in total is that correct it's uh i'd have to go back and look at the so this is what it that, said in the times but this is an older article of course yeah i mean so even that is a little bit muddy like this student from uh the student from 2013 who complained katura bixby was was included in allegations the husbands okay. and wives of both or i'm sorry the husbands of both celeste kid and and Jessica Cantlon signed on as accusers. Uh, there was a woman at, at who's who had been a former department head who is now at George uh, Georgetown. She signed on to these complaints about Florian. She is married to her former graduate student. She married her own student, and she signed on to these complaints. So, so yeah, the, the, the total was something like seven or nine or something like that. But there were these tangential people who um, the only the two people who sort of claimed to be victims were Celeste Kidd. And uh, and Katura Bixby, who was this student in 2013, who claimed. So, Katura Bixby, Bixby. I mean, it by all accounts, it sounds like nothing happened to her. So, I'm curious to know what you think about her motivations for going after Jaeger. It's it's so difficult to tell because none of these people would talk to me. Mm -hmm. Bixby, I have the least insight on because she was clearly made uncomfortable by Florian. I don't know what was going on with her, but she was made uncomfortable by these things that were obviously non-sexual writing a post-it note standing behind her writing a post-it note and um and taking her <laughs> picture she had also this is worth mentioning six months before she complained to the de department head and who had his name is greg DeAngelis, who had a, a talk with florian about this six months before that she had gone to her advisor and made the same complaints her advisor was richard aslan the guy mm -hmm. who later who three years later would 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 be one of the principal people destroying florian's life so for him, I, I, this is something that I asked every all of everybody in the department I spoke to. Why did they do this? Why do you think you know these people? Why do you think? And there were various responses. But for Aslan, it came down to a couple things. One, a student had complained and he hadn't done anything about it. So maybe he had some residual guilt. And I'm purely speculating here. Maybe he had some guilt over that. But people also noted that he is highly competitive, even when it 
came to things like the office bowling league. He's just a really competitive guy by nature. And during this process, he was constantly threatening to quit. And he'd spent his entire, he was very, very well liked. He was a mentor to a lot of people in the school. He's, he was a, a luminary in this field. Hmm. And he kept threatening to quit. And the school kept basically calling his bluff. And so his colleagues think that his feelings were hurt, basically. And that he'd also, he'd basically been snookered by these women Celeste Kidd and Jessica Cantlon primarily. And so once he sort of signed on with them, he must have realized at some point that it was bullshit, but he just couldn't stop. So ego would be sort of the shorthand for that. And for the other two, um, Cantlon and Kidd, so there's a, a series of messages between Cantlon and, and I'm sorry, between Kidd and, and, and Jaeger from when they first met. She got to the school shortly after him in 2007 uh, she was a graduate student. She was, I think, six years younger than him. And they had a, a pretty flirty tone. She supplied messages, sort of excerpts from messages that made it look like Florian was constantly hitting on her. If you look at the messages in total, and these are posted online, if you look at the messages in full, what emerges is a different picture. And what it looks like is not a budding romance, but sort of a, a flirtation. Um that, along with other things that I heard from members of the department that were hearsay, so I couldn't print them, made me think that she had a crush on him um, or had had a crush on him at one point. At one point, they lived together. That was a, a very bad choice on Florian's part, but he basically sublet a room to, uh, to her in his apartment. It didn't last very long. Um, and they had a falling out over some academic stuff. He basically gave her some overly harsh uh, feedback on a paper. So with her, my guess would be sort of, uh, a crush and then hurt feelings. And then for Cantlon, she, from talking to her colleagues, she comes across as an opportunist, somebody who realized mm. that she could get her way, sort of a, a manipulative person who realized that she could use this to her benefit. This started out being about Ruchi, about not getting Ruchi in the department, finding someone, getting someone in the department would be better for her career because someone who, who was more likely to collaborate with her. And then it just spiraled into this whole other thing. They were dogged. I mean, they kept all of the investigations found the same thing and they doggedly kept pursuing this. Yeah. I mean, I got the impression even from your article that the issue with kid was that she had a crush on him and felt rejected. Um, there was one, one part in your story about her showing up at a party and he was there with a woman he was dating or his girlfriend or something like that. And that very obviously made her angry because she sent him a bunch of angry messages. Is that yeah. right? And yeah. she had a she had a bachelor's degree in journalism. She never practiced journalism, but she had a bachelor's degree. And so he so basically he was involved with someone else. She goes to this party, gets mad about that he's there with somebody else. She later said that he was groping a woman at this party. There's no evidence of that. And it was and the uh, woman that he was th that was there as his date that, his, that his she girlfriend. was accusing him of right. groping. So he was, it was his girlfriend. And, um, Maybe he was groping her, but <laughs> he says that he wasn't. I talked to the host of the party. The woman herself would not um, would not talk to me, but I have mm. subsequently heard from other people that she uh, agreed with with my my portrayal of of her in the story. So I I, I think that I think it's fairly stated. Sure, I sorry. I think it's very fairly clear that that this allegation was was uh, untrue. So so Celeste sends sends him all these messages. Um, the next day he wakes up, calls her, they decide to go for a walk. And um, she says, according to him, she says, basically, you know, I don't, I don't want anyone. I'm trying to protect you. This woman is only using you because you're a professor. 
Um, and I know how this could get, as a journalist, I know how this could get twisted to ruin your career. Ironic. Well, it sounds manipulative to me. I mean, I'm totally speculating and passing judgment based on, but I mean, right. based on information that is real information, but um, it, yeah, it sounds, it's, it's interesting because I don't know if you know about this story, but in Vancouver, something very, very, very similar went down at UBC and the creative, you do know this story about Stephen Galloway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I read it and I was like, wow, this is so similar and it all happened around the same time. And just for people who are listening, who aren't familiar with this, there's a really good uh, rundown story about the case in Quillette by Brad Cran, who's my friend. And um, I've read that. I've talked to him about the case. I've talked to John Kay about the case, John, Jonathan Kay, who's an editor at Quillette, who's followed it very closely and is very familiar with all the details. But so I think, you know, what happened was he was accused of rape and he was accused of bad behavior, sexual harassment. He was accused of abuse. There was a number of investigations. All the investigations found that he didn't do anything wrong. You know, the most wrong thing that he may have done was to maybe be an asshole or maybe behave, you know, have sort of inappropriate relations with some of the students in the department. But that, you know, that was the, by all accounts, that was the culture of the department. And things do get weird when you're going out for drinks and you're going to the bar with students. You know, yeah. obviously things get unprofessional. But you know, he didn't do any of the things that he was accused of doing. And the people who accused him were not the victims. Um, and, and then the people who went along with it in Canlit, you know, within the Canadian literature community um, and in the media and in progressive circles and in feminist circles didn't know anything about the case because Galloway wasn't allowed to talk about it. Um, and UBC wasn't talking about it, but it, this it, it was, the story was in the media, so everybody was left to speculate. Right. Um, so right. everything that people believed was based on hearsay. It tore Canlit apart. You know, Margaret Atwood, who's mm -hmm. probably the most famous Canadian writer, signed on to this letter, not even supporting Galloway per se, but supporting due process. And she was, you know, tarred and feathered on social media, and it caused like crazy divisions um, within yeah that community. And his career is totally ruined. He's been destroyed psychologically and emotionally. You know, he's suffered enormous consequences in terms of his mental health. Um, and still, these women, these accusers, will not admit that they were wrong. Yeah. I mean, you can't at that point. And, and even when there is subsequent reporting, like my reporting on, on Florian, Brad's reporting on Stephen Galloway, uh, the the I think the best reporting that has been done to exonerate one of the men of Me Too is Jane Mayer's exhaustive piece on Al Franken, where she got the metadata from a digital photo that was taken. You know, she just she did such great investigative work. Al Franken is not going back to the Senate anytime soon. He's hosting a fucking podcast. So even when the record is corrected, it doesn't matter. Once the allegation is made, unless it's a Jussie Smollett situation. Once the allegation is made, it's too late. By that point, it's too late. It's really crazy. Um, and I wonder, I mean, have these women, have you heard anything from these women since all this no. went down? No. So they've done something absolutely brilliant. So I was legitimately scared that they were going to file a lawsuit against me. Not that I mm. thought that they had any 
chance of winning it because the piece is air fucking tight, but also because it's really hard to sue journalists in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's but, a pain in the ass and very expensive and stressful. Anyway. And they're litigious. They have shown themselves to be litigious and they have money. So I was mm-hmm. deeply concerned about this to the point where I was looking into defamation insurance just for this one piece. But it turns out that would have cost more than I got paid for the piece. So I decided just fuck it. But they have done something remarkably smart, which is completely ignore it. And so because they didn't issue any sort of response and they didn't go scorched earth, which is what I thought was going to happen, it's dying. You know what I mean? Like way, way fewer people are ever going to see this piece because they are ignoring it. Right. Um, so Yeah, because they didn't cause a stink on social media and start trying to defend themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I got, I got uh, I think, one email from someone who said, um, you know, I know Jessica Cantlon and you're completely wrong about her. But I also got emails from people who said, I know Jessica Cantlon and you're exactly right about her. So, of course, some people are never, especially people who are close to her, are never going to be convinced otherwise. It doesn't matter how many investigations there are. It doesn't matter how many documents are reviewed. They're just never going to be convinced. And that's fine. Um, but I, I think that for Florian, even if this piece can't, won't ultimately change the course of his career, I do think that there is some solace in just having the correct story out there. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean... I think, I mean, I think so much of this just comes down to ego and people just, yeah, not wanting to admit that they're wrong. And people do this in all sorts of contexts nowadays, like people who, you know, have doubled, people who doubled down on the Jesse Smollett thing, I oh think my God. probably my are not coming out. <laughs> I know it's amazing. What a I, great story. That, I like the day that that happens. I, wrote, I was working for The Stranger at the time, and I wrote a piece about how I didn't even say, I think this is bullshit, although that's what I thought, but I didn't say that. I was being careful, and I said, look, this is suspicious. This came also like three or four days after the Covington Catholic story, so we had right. just seen this story blow up and then get disassembled, and so I, I wrote this piece saying, like, let's just wait for a little bit more investigation, and my editor at the time wouldn't publish it. This is maybe one of two times in my in my career there that they absolutely refused to publish something. Um, yeah. And it was you and could it, have been the first one to be right. I know, I know. <laughs> but and it's like it was so obviously bullshit. So obvious. And so many people were so willing to believe it because it confirmed their priors. Yeah. And after the fact, people don't come back and apologize and say, oh, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have assumed I should have looked into this. I should have like, I shouldn't be gullible or should have just like wait and see. Like at least if I don't know something or I'm not sure, like, I don't know that I'm as smart as you are to know, like, oh, this is bullshit, but I don't immediately go online and start posting about it. I'm like, I'm going to wait and see what happens. I'm going to look into this. I want to read. I want to figure out what actually went down. And very, very few people seem interested in doing that now. Yes. Yeah. And I get it. I'm sure that I've done the exact same thing when there's some story that confirms my priors. It's a very human, uh, human impulse. Right. I'm sure I've done it in the past. I don't want to say I've never done it, but I think that nowadays, you know, yeah, we just need a healthy degree of skepticism about fucking everything. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think war in Ukraine is really proving this out. There's so many stories that, um, you know, have turned out to be false. Part of it just sort of natural fog of war stuff and and part of it probably actual propaganda. Mm -hmm. Um, So even if something is like, you know, a feel-good story, don't fucking believe it, man. 
I mean, yeah. and you can you can also go too far down the rabbit hole. You totally can, um, and and you know start believing that the world is actually flat. But well, I mean, yeah, there's a reason why so many conspiracy theorists exist today. Many of them are not conspiracy theorists. Many of the things that were called conspiracies actually turned out to be true. But it's because people no longer trust the media and people don't trust these kinds of accusations and reports anymore, I think. I mean, I certainly don't because it's turned into the boy who cried wolf. Like yeah. that's the, So right. now when people say, when people accuse somebody of being a racist, when somebody accuses somebody of being a sexual harasser or a predator, I'm more likely not to believe it because of how things yeah. have gone down online in terms of many of these accusations. Yeah. I, I totally get that. I remember um, when the first stories, the the first stories about uh, Ahmad Aubrey came out and my first impulse wasn't like, oh, this is a lynching. But after yeah. seeing the evidence, I think it's pretty clear that it was. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I totally have that same impulse now, which is when I hear any sort of allegation, my first thought is, mm, really? Yeah. So do you think this this lack of interest in facts and due process and in redeeming somebody once it's come out that what they've been accused of is not true um, and, you know, continuing to go along with it as though it is true? I mean, right now, today, there's still protests going on on campus against Jaeger. Yeah, there was last fall. I don't know if there there have been any uh, in twenty twenty two, but there was oh, okay. last fall. Yeah, but there's still there's uh, there's like people leave flyers around campus, write graffiti on his walls. Um, yeah, I spoke to a I spoke to a, a student a student who organized a protest against him, and I asked if he'd read any of the reports about him, and he said he hadn't. You know, he'd read the media coverage, most the vast majority of which is credulous of the allegations. And um, and he said, what did he say? He told me something like, uh, you know, if I hear something multiple times, um, why wouldn't I believe it or something like that? Well, <sighs> do you think this is like a new trend or do you think that humans are kind of prone to this kind of behavior where they want to go join the mob? Oh, yeah. I think it's a very natural thing. I think social media exacerbates it um, because you don't have to grab a pitchfork and go down to town square. You can just get on Twitter uh, and and. I think we're more tribal so for the same reasons. I think we're more tribal, um, less connected to our actual communities. COVID certainly has that. But I think this is a very, a very natural human thing. And I, I think we actually need to accept that and, um, and figure out ways to mitigate it rather than, uh, rather than assuming that this is something that can be sort of humans can be convinced not to do. Yeah, I don't think I can accept it, but I, um, I, th I think that's nice that you're like, this is a reality and there's not that much we can do about human nature, but yeah. it makes me really angry and frustrated. It makes me like, I was going to say hate, but that's a strong word. It well, makes I mean, me frustrated with a lot of right, people but I mean, in our as, world. You know, as, that's the thing. It's really frustrating when you see journalists falling into this trap. Mm -hmm. I don't blame people for believing what they read. I blame journalists for writing shit that's not true because they have a they have blinders because they're steeped in an ideology because they hashtag believe women or whatever it is or because they're scared of their peers. Um, those are that I think is the real problem is a lack of, of sort of rigor and skepticism in, in journalism today. Yeah. And this happens in all sorts of contexts. And, you know, I... In Canada, for example, when there was the freedom convoy that happened in protest of the, the mandates and the lockdowns, 
the Canadian media reported terribly on them and went along with these accusations that were going around on social media that they were white supremacists, that they were right. dangerous, and they're Nazi. Even that, you know, Trudeau pushed these accusations, calling these people racist and misogynist and so on and so forth. And the CBC, which is our national broadcaster, you know, it's our primary source of news in Canada, um, had to walk back some of its accusations. One reporter had implied that, you know, this was about like Russian interference. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, they're so interested in the narrative and so disinterested in facts. And I think you're right. I think that so much of the responsibility should be placed on the shoulders of news media, of journalists, of reporters who are not doing their jobs and instead are looking for, I don't know, maybe social acceptance. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not exactly. I think exactly they believe it. I think that's mm -hmm. part of it. Although you do, like, there was a an interesting story that really didn't make as many waves as I thought it would. Although I, I. I should have thought, you know, I should have expected what would happen. But there's a, you know, Project Veritas, which is, I, I think, a sort of a skeezy outlet, but they do these sort of uh, hidden camera videos to try to capture libs. You know, they'll go to Planned Parenthood and get them talking about, you know, body parts and shit like that. <laughs> but they, uh, they recorded a New York Times reporter talking to two of his colleagues, a guy who had reported on the January 6th riots, basically mm. being like, dude, you weren't in danger. This whole thing was blown up way more than it should have been. Meanwhile, his reporting is, is you know, tells a different story. So there's that, you know, that sort of, uh, that, that like an actual dishonesty in the reporting. But I do think a lot of people are genuine believers. They are ideologues. Um, and I think that's becoming more and more acceptable in media, and maybe that's a good thing because it's more upfront. There's this term, uh, Wesley, um, I'm forgetting his last name, uh, former New York Times or former Washington Yang? Post. No, not Yang. Um, not Lowry. There's too many Wesleys. Uh, uh, he's a former reporter for Washington Post, and he coined this term moral clarity, that reporters should have moral clarity. And I, I just think that that's, I, that's fundamentally at odds with, with what reporting is. Yeah. I think reporting should be about trying to get the full picture not telling your audience what is what is correct according to you it should be about really trying to trying to tell the entire the entire the whole story yeah i mean it's interesting because <clears throat> like i went to journalism school i dropped out but i did most of a graduate degree in journalism school that's more then... than i did <laughs> i've never taken a single journalism class i mean maybe that's another thing is that too many of them are just like fucking people who 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 were bloggers who conned our way into real journalism jobs. Oh, I don't think that's the problem. I think that's the solution <laughs> because I think that the problem is these young kids who are being churned out of journalism programs and have no life experience and are generally of the same demographics and very privileged and yeah. have been sold the exact same narratives in university. Um, and they end up in these jobs that are underpaid all the experienced journalists who are older are being pushed out because these media outlets can't afford to pay those kinds of wages anymore. So they don't know what they're doing. They're young, they're naive. Most of them like, so I was in journalism school primarily, not entirely, but primarily with um, kids who were in their twenties, early twenties, who'd never worked a job before, you know, had middle-class or upper-class families who were paying their way. I was working 
full time. So I kept, I, you know, I had to like leave, like I couldn't finish the program because I couldn't afford to finish and I didn't have time. And I started working in journalism. I was starting to get published and that was the whole point. Like I was mm -hmm. like, how do I get published in journalism? Because it's very difficult to do unless you go to journalism school because it's set up, at least in Canada anyway, and I think it's set up in, in ways like this in the U.S. where you can't get an internship unless you're in a, a program in school, a journalism program, and then you can't make the connections that you need to to get a job. Um, <clears throat> but I forget where I was going with this. Oh, right. Even then, which was, you know, not that long ago, this was in maybe 2012 that I was in this program, when I was learning how to do journalism, I wanted to be like an activist journalist. And I thought the idea of unbiased reporting was like stupid and sexist. Mm -hmm. And um, I was taught by my editor um, and by some of the instructors in the program that like, no, you still have to get the other side of the story. You still have to interview the people that you don't like and you still have to tell the story fairly. You can't just tell the story that you want to tell. And through that, I learned that by interviewing the people that I didn't want to interview, who are going to say things that I didn't want to say, who are going to like fuck with my preferred narrative, that you come out with a totally different story. Like usually the story that you think you're going to tell, or this was mm -hmm. my experience anyway, is not the story that you come out with on the end. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think there is really a fundamental difference between an outlet like Feminist Current, which it's right there in the title. Like, you know that this is that this is an outlet with a perspective. This is activism. Um, I worked at a, at, a, at a climate change outlet. It was activist journalism. Mm. And a place like the New York Times or the Washington Post or a local paper where I think that the activist journalism should really be kept to the opinion pages yeah. and not, uh, not sort of um, published under the guise of objectivity. Yeah, I agree. Um, I wonder, like, do you think, I, I I think, because I've almost, I mean, I'll read mainstream news for information and to see what's going on. But if I want the actual story, I'll look to the independent journalists, you know, people who have moved to Substack, essentially, like Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, um, you and who else do I subscribe to? But like Barry Weiss. Mm -hmm. um, and because, you know, I can't, I can't trust mainstream media. I can't trust the New York Times. I can't trust CNN. You know, Fox News is obviously biased. I certainly don't trust the CBC. Is that what you see as the solution to these kinds of um, stories that get way out of hand and destroy people's lives and nobody walks it back? I mean, nobody told the real story. Nobody even tried to tell the real story except for you. Is well, I, I, I don't really think that this is a solution because I think the problem is bigger. So what you're talking about is trust, right? And I'm, I'm glad that people think that the work I do is trustworthy. But I also think that some people do. Some people, like the people that you just named, other, somebody would laugh at that and be like, oh, those are the most four fucking biased journalists and I'm working in America today. And there would be some point to that, I think. So what you're talking but so what you're talking <laughs> but about. But I like their biases. Right, right. right. <laughs> I do, I trust them. Right. I trust so them. I think is, that they're doing a good job. So this is the problem though, is if in a in a, in a uh, an ecosystem like Substack, if you're supporting these four people or whatever, you're not even getting the other perspective. 
And so I think it's really important to get the other perspective mm-hmm. to, in addition to reading us also read the CBC and the New York times and all that shit. And just to see the full sort of broadness of whatever story is going mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. and to not trust these four people either. I mean, you sh- I mean, I hope that people do trust me or at least trust that I have uh, at least a good integrity uh, yeah, and integrity. you're doing your job as best you can. Right. Um, but there's just also, it just creates smaller and smaller silos, right? And this is especially true with paywalled content. So mm-hmm. if I have a story and only, or, uh, you know, we do a podcast and only our, you know, our 7,000 paying subscribers are going to hear it. That's a really small audience compared to putting out free content. I mean, this problem exists with, with uh, paywalls, every paywall, but if you don't have an advertiser supported model, you're really limiting the number of people who can see your stuff. I mean, some people are huge anyway. I think, you know, Andrew Sullivan and Barry and, and Glenn Greenwald and Taibi, they have massive audiences. So a lot of people will still see their stuff, but it's still a, a self-selected group of people. Um, and I think that the other problems with journalism go even deeper than that. And it comes down to just economics and the fact that in the United States, at least, a small number of companies have bought out and oftentimes closed local papers. And mm-hmm. so there's nobody covering the school board. There's nobody covering the police. There's nobody covering the city council. And that's a huge problem. Um, that's a problem for, you know, everybody, everybody in a community, not just the people who are hyper online and, and include on to, 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 to media. Um, it, it, it really is. And so, and I don't think Substack can, can fix that. No. Right. Uh, there there can be some like in Asheville, North Carolina, where I'm from. There's an interesting new nonprofit outlet. Asheville is a town that a lot of people retire to or they make a bunch of money in California or New York and they go move to Asheville because it seems affordable to them. So there's a number of of retired of old newspaper newspaper reporters down there who were at big major outlets and they've formed a nonprofit where they're basically they've got time. So they're doing basically free journalism, free investigative journalism. And they've broken some really big stories about things like the takeover of the healthcare system. Hmm. That's obviously not a great model either, because that depends on, you know, people who don't need to get paid for a living. Um, But at least there, at least least there is some good reporting coming out, coming out of that area. Whereas the, you know, the local paper has, I think, four actual reporters left. Um, So the problems are just, the problems are so big with media and it's economic it's pipeline issues, as you mentioned. A lot of people who get into it are are uh, for la- for to use an annoying term, highly fucking privileged, and they're not yeah. people who are coming out of community colleges or who don't have any college degree at all. They're people who come out of Columbia Journalism School and can mm-hmm. afford to go live in New York and get paid pennies um, to do an internship for a year or so. So that really narrows the the, the band of people who can do it. Uh, you don't make shit for money. Um, you really don't like one of the reasons I rarely write anymore is because I don't make any money doing it. It really, it pays really, really poorly. Um, You know, I can make more money doing a podcast uh, than spending doing one episode of a podcast than I, than a piece that takes me six months to write. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just, I don't have the time and I'm constantly feeling guilty about it. I'm constantly feeling frustrated because there's lots of things that I do want to cover and write about, but I just don't have the capability because you know, I'm trying to make a living doing what I'm doing now. And if I put that aside and like you say, I spend all this time on this piece and you get paid, you know, 300 bucks, then you can't pay your rent. Right. Right. Yeah. Money. I mean, money is a huge problem in all of this. Do you see any solutions? I mean, no, no, (laughs) I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if, you know, if God, if, if some, if some, 
billionaire decides that that, that he would probably Peter be, Thiel, man. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, start uh supporting local local Thiel. news, Thiel, yeah. Um or uh or Jeff Bezos uh ex-wife, <clears throat> whatever, Mackenzie Scott, who just you know is is unloading billions of dollars every day. Um if they want to put some money into funding local journalism outlets, I think that would be great. But also you've got problems with that, you know, altruism, there's, there's problems with, with, uh, with who your funders are, you know, audience capture is a real thing. If you're, if it, whether it's coming from sub people who are subscribing your sub stack for $5 a month, or it's uh, people who are giving you grants. So these problems are just, are just huge and they seem insurmountable. And I, I would, what I would like to do, and I'm, this just occurred to me now is I think it would be interesting to look at places that do have robust functioning uh, media ecosystems I don't know where they are. Um, if anybody does, I don't know. L let me know. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously this sort of thing also happened. There's a problem in journalism, but this whole thing happened within the context of Me Too. Do you think that Me Too was a problem? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think some good came out of it, but I think what? it was good in what a very... What came out of it, according to you? So a very, I think a very narrow band. So, uh, so a couple of bad guys went to jail, presuming that they're actually bad. Cosby, um, Weinstein. Cosby, Cosby's out of jail, but Weinstein. Um, Larry Nasser, I think Larry Nasser preceded me too. Oh, yeah, um, but the the like allegations against him seem credible because yeah. they're based on uh, contemporaneous accounts like girls writing in their diaries years ago. Anyway, so so that's good. I think um, <laughs> having a conversation about, about, um, about uh, harassment in the workplace is important, but I think most of the victories came at the very upper echelon of society. So you'll get more yeah. women on on boards in Hollywood, right? That doesn't do shit for a woman working down at the Amazon plant, right? This doesn't do shit for the woman who's who's getting her ass slapped at the Waffle House. So I don't know that there was any sort of trickle down. Where and like I've worked in restaurants, I've worked a lot of blue collar jobs. That's where the harassment, like, not that it doesn't happen in media, of course it does, it happens in academia, of course it does, but go work in a restaurant, <laughs> you know, go work in a factory if you want to see, like, real serious physical sexual harassment. Um, well, and, and where you have, where you have no other options, where you feel like where there is a genuine threat that you might lose your job, and if you yeah. lose your job, yes. you can't pay your rent or take care of right. your families, which is right. different than, oh, you don't get this role in this big Hollywood movie. Yeah. Sorry. So, so I think that's one of the, one of the big flaws of me too, was that the, uh, you know, maybe it changed the conversation a little bit, but did it do anything for the average woman facing actual sexual harassment on the street? Mm -hmm. I kind of doubt it. Um, and there are, you know, a number of sort of false positives where people were convicted in the court of public opinion Things that things like the shitty media men list that really yeah. did destroy some people's jobs and lives. I think yeah. it's really fucked up. Yeah. Um, I mean, one good thing that came out of it is I think a, a, a healthy amount of skepticism among some. I mean, certainly not everyone, but I think some of us developed a, a, a more highly attuned bullshit meter after hearing some of these stories. I think so too. I mean, there's this. There's this criticism of Me Too, and I would agree with it, I think, um, in many ways, which was that, you know, <clears throat> a lot of these Hollywood women, a lot of these big famous celebrity actresses that accused and, you know, launched, you know, or at least made this Me Too movement as big as it was, 
and also started, um, I'm forgetting the name of the other movement that the Time's actress up. was. Time's up. Thank you. Um, you know, that they kind of participated in this until it was convenient for them not to participate. Yeah. Yeah. There have been, uh, let's see, there, who was it? I'm forgetting the details here. There was some woman who made an accusation that Time's Up did not support her. Maybe it was Tara Reid, the woman who accused Joe Biden. And it seems like those, oh. those accusations were bullshit. Yeah. I think she had appealed to, to Time's Up or something like that, mm-hmm. um, which is good. I mean, but the thing is, though, if he hadn't you know, been the Democratic presidential nominee, they probably would have paid more attention to her uh, to her claims. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she seemed um, crazy to me. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Check out her Twitter. She's a she's a huge fan of Putin. Loves Putin. Very, <laughs> very interesting. Weird. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, and I guess to clarify, because I don't know if I articulated that properly for people who were watching, but you know that they they went along with this whole casting couch system and went along with the sexual harassment and the sexual predation that does certainly happen in Hollywood with these guys who have the power to make or break your career. But they went along with it and profited from it and gained in terms of their career until Me Too started happening. And then it felt safe for them to come out and start talking and come out with all these allegations against whomever. And it's just sort of like, you know, you could have done this before, but you wanted to get yours. Right. I mean, I guess you'll be you'll be accused of victim blaming for this, but it's clearly some of these were. And there's, I think, a difference between sort of this transactional relationship and actual you know coercion or rape like you know physical rape but yeah i mean there is some element of you benefited from that and not and not i mean you know you do her you did her i don't mean like you deserved it but i just mean like well you You participated yeah and you i mean and to be clear i think there are some women who didn't participate and whose careers Mm -hmm. did suffer or at least that's what they say yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's, it, you know, it's complicated and uh, in every case needs to be looked at for its own merits rather than just lumping all men or all women together. Um, yeah. And I mean, another part of the problem, another thing that happened within this story, within the Galloway case, and that happens all the time in these kinds of accusations and that happens all the time online is 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 it concept creep is am i getting mm-hmm. that term right mm-hmm. you know where it's like men are accused in this context particularly men are accused of sexual harassment of abuse of rape of predation and that's not what happened like maybe they did something shitty um but what happened wasn't rape but it's become popular and okay to accuse people of abuse and rape and sexual harassment when right. that's not went what went down and i sort of think that a lot of these people like i don't think that it's necessarily about women lying i think that they they do kind of believe it in ways sometimes i think mm-hmm. it's just they're out for revenge and maybe they yeah. feel rejected or this guy was an asshole to them or they behaved badly but you know it's not actual abuse yeah. Um, yeah, I heard a, a, there's a, a comic, her name's uh, Cameron Esposito, I think. And I, I heard an interview of her during Me Too. And she was talking about how she didn't realize until Me Too that she'd been sexually assaulted. So she had some experience. And then after she started hearing other people's stories, it reframed this experience that she had in her mind. The thing is, if the experience wasn't traumatic to her at the time, I'm not sure that reframing it as a trauma is actually helpful to her. 
Um, and I do think that there are, I think that like I've talked to, I've never had this experience, but I have talked to many women, women who have been sexually assaulted by a man who honestly does not realize that he is sexually assaulting her, totally. who thinks it's consensual. And I, that is super real. And I, I think it probably has something to do with, uh, with different ways of reading signals. Um, and that, that absolutely happens. So you can have a, a sexual experience that you don't even realize is traumatic to another person. I don't know how you fix that other than consent culture, which is the least sexy thing in the world. I don't think that's actually a sort of natural thing that's going to organically people are going to adopt unless it's like written into their university code of conduct. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. And I remember trying to talk about that reality during Me Too. And not because it's like, I want to necessarily excuse the behavior, but it's because these women really did have an experience that they were very upset by, maybe even traumatized by. And this dude has no idea. No and then idea. all of a sudden, someone comes out and accuses him of being a rapist. And he's like, what? I've never raped anybody before. What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't know really how to resolve that either. You know, I tend to think that some men are very bad at reading For sure. body language. And, Especially and when there's a bunch of blood in their dicks. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I think I think you're true that you're right. I mean, this like the Kavanaugh situation with uh, Christine Blasey Ford. Right. That's kind of what I think happened. I mm. think that she was genuinely traumatized, and he genuinely. Did, like didn't realize he was doing if, if this indeed happened and this wasn't some sort of recovered memory situation i think that that's totally possible that when he says i didn't rape anyone or i didn't assault this woman he it is true in his mind and when she says i'm a victim of assault it is true in her mind and you can't really resolve that no no and the right way to deal with it is not to cast these men out of society which is what what i was trying to say which was like cuz you know like i was a whole bunch of men I mean, this happened in communities and cities across North America, but in Vancouver specifically, this happened sort of within the, you know, DJ community, which makes a lot of sense because you're at bars and you're at after hours and people yeah. are getting wasted and people are hooking up and people are not communicating properly or necessarily cognizant of what's going on even. Um, and a lot of these men were me too'd and ostracized from the society, from the city, and can't really function there anymore and can't work anymore. Um, and, you know, I don't doubt that many of them were sleazebags or maybe even worse, but I do believe that most of them didn't have any idea they were doing something wrong. Yeah. And I've had, you know, I'm a lesbian and I've had similar experiences with women and where a woman is genuinely doing something that is unwanted um, and if you don't, if, if you, and this is difficult to do, to say no, it is difficult because there's all of this social niceties and it's awkward and you like the person and you don't want to be like, wait a second, I'm not actually into this. That is a, that is a reality. People do things sometimes mm -hmm. not because they are physically being forced to do it, but because there's an inherent awkwardness in saying no. And we do that in all sorts of contexts, not just sex. Um, you know, and I, I think women need to be better about, about saying no and men need, need to be better about hearing it. Yeah, for sure. So um, I'll let you go soon. I know you're almost out of time here. Um, 
I, I think that this is all, including the concept creep, including the, you know, accusing men of abuse who are not actually perpetrating abuse and accusing men of rape and sexual harassment when that's not actually what they're doing, including this whole Me Too thing, including believe women, including rejecting due process and this idea that if a woman says something, you just have to believe her no matter what. And even looking into it is abusive to her. Even when, you know, like if a woman is on trial or going to the cops because she's accused somebody to rape, even to question her is mm -hmm. unacceptable and abusive within this modern version of fe feminism. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious to know if you think that third wave feminism, let's call it third wave feminism. Um, so that's like, you know, the feminism that started sort of in the mid nineties and continues on now, as far as I'm concerned, do you think that's been good for women? That's a really good question. In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Um, God, that's even in ways where I think it's been good. I like I was gonna say, like, all right, there's more like sex positivity culture, but I think we're seeing now the backlash to sex positivity culture, which is very real. Interesting, um, interesting. Yeah, I've oh, been opposed God. to sex positivity for so long now, and now everyone's getting on board yeah, yeah. <laughs> with my anti-sex position. Yeah, the vibe has shifted. Um, <laughs> I think it's been, you know, it's not as we're not talking about suffragettes we're not talking about you know women having uh you know uh having opportunities in the workplace what we haven't seen is you know in the united states fucking maternity leave you know uh it's incredibly mm. expensive to have these united these states maternity leave is so bad i can never believe it when women tell me it's like you got to go back to work in like a week or two weeks or something it like. depends on where you are but it, yes it's terrible um and it's bad for men too it's bad for men not to be able to bond with their babies so we just this our lack of, of social safety net in that way um uh, feminism hasn't done anything to fix that and so these real material uh material things like all right there's a, a woman in the in the white house second in command she's not the one that i would choose god you no. know you know so oh god on in on net maybe not maybe it hasn't been good good for women i'm sure you know people making their living doing burlesque dancing would probably argue that i'm wrong but aoc yeah. would probably argue that you're wrong probably <laughs> okay well thanks for talking with me about all this i'm glad that we were finally able to have this conversation and um i always enjoy talking with you so hopefully we can do it soon hopefully maybe yeah. in person someday hopefully yeah. all right good to see you hey, take care right. bye i'm megan murphy host of the same drugs thank you for tuning in if you enjoyed this episode please consider becoming a patron on patreon that's patreon.com slash megan murphy I rely solely on donors and individual supporters to continue to do the work I do. You can donate as little as $5 a month or more. It all counts. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.